This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. You were just telling me a moment ago that you've been to South Africa. Oh, yeah, a lot for three years. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I was in the, uh, believe it or not, I was in the bull semen business, uh, frozen bull semen for, for, what? for yeah, for, for artificial insemination. And South Africa was my second biggest market after Saudi Arabia, of all places, because I was the regional director of marketing for the world's number one bull semen export exporting company, which is out of California. So from 82 to 85, I traveled all over South Africa and, and I would just rent a Volkswagen Jetta. I would stop in a local music store, buy 20 of the old, you know, you know, magnetic cassettes, you know, of African music and just rock and roll, you know, for two or three weeks, visiting farm after farm after farm. And all over the country. And of course, this was during apartheid. And so all of my clients were, you know, obviously well, well off, you know, white farmers. But I, I got it's just it's such an amazing country. It's so beautiful. And the people are so nice. And the food is so good. And the wine is good. And it's just it's just I think it's a I think it's a mini paradise. And I'd love to come back and uh, see it again it, it it had a huge impact on me I, I just had a wonderful wonderful and i visited i probably visited for the three years that i was there i probably visited two or three months a year so i was there for you know six to nine months because it was my second biggest market so i spent a lot of time there I just ate it up well if and when you do return i'll take you for lunch and <laughs> And we'll have wine. <laughs> I'll buy the wine. Now, you're in France. So there's a little bit of rivalry in terms of wine. My wife and I were in France just a few years ago. And uh, we thought that the wine was good, but not as great as what the marketing will have you believe. Am I biased? Well, you're. Oh, I think you are. <laughs> I mean... I'll tell you, I'll tell you the wines that I think are, I think the wines that are overrated are the United States. They're just, they're expensive, you know, 15, 20, $25 a bottle. It's not worth it. You know, I can buy, I can buy a beautiful, beautiful bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon here or a Merlot or, or, you know, here, you know, for four or five euros, and it's 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 very good, very drinkable, and you know, and so and so I have my half a bottle. I I have my half a bottle of red wine every night, Cabernet Sauvignon every night with my with my dinner, and I really enjoy it. I can't. It's been so long for South African wines. I mean, I just remember they were really good. I even brought back some. I even was taking it back in my. Uh, I was even bringing uh, a padded padded cases of it you know and and paying extra baggies to bring it back to the united states when i went back you know just because of the novelty and it was really good and and so i'm let's let's just say they're they're equally good you you published a book uh called 44 days backpacking through china i'm absolutely fascinated by your story when take, take me back why why did you do this well we 
um, my wife and I lived in China from 1990 to 1997. And that was a completely different universe. It was just totally, totally different. We left, uh, unfortunately, in 2008 with the real estate, you know, ripoff, uh, the subprime real estate ripoff in the United States. We lost everything, went bankrupt. And so in 2010, we went back to China and stayed there until 2019. So we were there for a total of 16 years. And I just got back spending a month there. So and germ the why I took the trip, the 44 days backpacking in China is it, it was a it was a it was an epiphany for me because in the 1990s, China was, uh, I called it the Deng Xiaoping wild East Buckaroo days. It was naked, vulgar, street level capitalism. Everybody was trying to rip everybody else off. Everybody was lying and cheating and stealing, trying to make a buck. It was it was street level capitalism, absolutely out of control. Of course, at the national level, they still had all their state owned enterprises and the big corporations. But on a day to day basis, it was a bit it was a bit like a drug trip. It was it was extremely, extremely um, uh, exciting and stressful at the same time. So we that's what we left in 1997. We came back in 2010 and I was just gobsmacked. I was like what the hell is going on here this country has changed the people have changed it's like a whole nother world and we were in beijing and it had developed infrastructurally and socioeconomically so much and i kept saying to myself well i got to get out of beijing this is the big this is fat city this is the big capital i want to get out and really see it, the, the, this amazing transformation, is it only be in Beijing because of the Olympics two years ago, or is it really something on uh, broader? So I picked out the six, I picked out the six poorest province uh, states, provinces um, uh, in China. And uh, I, the whole trip was like 12,000 something kilometers. I did not take a plane. I took local trains. I took I, I, I hiked. I, I you know, I, I took local buses um, and I went to these six uh, very poor province or relatively poor. And it was the same thing because I had already been to those been to those places back in the 1990s and the transformation and the uh, of the infrastructure was just as incredible and the transformation of the people was just as as incredible and so i started writing um a blog when we first got there and i had i had a i had an old samsung pad and i was using that to write write on during my travels and and it ended up being 44 days and when I got back, I thought I was going to write a blog. And when I got back, it was already like twenty-five or 30,000 words. And I said, this isn't a blog. This is a book. And so, and so I, I had taken hundreds of pictures, of course, talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people because I do read, read, speak, and write Chinese, Mandarin. 
And so I wrote 44 Days Backpacking in China, and, and um, it's a geopolitical, it's a, it's, it's a geopolitical, cultural, social, you know, travel log, um, history, it, it covers everything. And then I felt a little bit, I felt like I got things wrong in that book. I, I just, I had an uneasy feeling about, about some of my interpretation of, uh, of Chinese history, especially since liberation in 1949. I went back and did a lot of research. And at the same time, I saw the World Trade Center building number seven. Someone sent me the little clip, you know, of the 42-story 42 42 building going down in free fall. And I'm a, I'm a certified science teacher, and I'm like going, that's, that's not possible. So I started digging into the West, and what I ended up learning is, is I could not really see China as China is and the people are without knowing the true face of the West. And unfortunately, it's not a pretty picture. It was, it was a... It was painful, you know, to discover the, everything I learned about the West. And that ended up being the book called China Rising, Capitalist Roads, Socialist Destinations. And the first hundred and something pages are all about the United, about the West and how, you know, the, the awful things that, that, that the West has done and continues to do. And then I, you know, we, we, we continued to travel and go around and, and I wrote a, the, the third book called The Big Red Book on China, um, Revolution, I can't remember the subtitle, Revolution, um, History Revolution and something else. And, and so, that, so I, I've actually written what's called the China Trilogy, the three books about China. And, the, and, and finally, after, you know, I was able to finally um, channel uh, what the Chinese, what the Chinese think and believe and feel in their voice. And, and that's not something that very, that very many foreigners, you know, can do or, or have tried to do. And, and so, uh, so I think the, th I, th I think, I think the three books are, are just, a, it's a lot of people say it's like a, the, the trilogy is like a, you know, a, a, a degree in Chinese studies, because they're all, they're three, you know, quite different. Uh, the 44 days is, you know, cultural and social and um, kind of, you know, everyday stuff, you know, languages and clothing and history and everything. China rising is very political. And, uh, and then, and then a uh, big red book on China really gets into the history of, of China Um uh, especially uh, during the, from from 1949 onward, and I really get into that, and so that's what's happened. That's why I that's why and and I just got back. I was there for in the for the month of May for after three years, because we left in 2019, and of course COVID put the kibosh on any travel, and my, I'm not I'm not injected um, with the, with the vaccine, yeah, with the vaccine, and so it really made traveling and even just living here in France, living hell because we were, you know, pariahs and, 
And, but now I finally got to travel. And so I went back for the entire month of May and, and or almost but 26 days, something like that. So China is my muse. And, and when I got finished riding 44 days backpacking in China, I realized I couldn't stop writing. And so I started this website at first it was called 44 days and then Patrick Granville of the, of the Greenville post took, took my website and he actually hosts it. And, and we, and we changed the name to China rising radio Sinoland. And I've written hundreds of articles, hundreds and hundreds of articles. Uh, since then I've done hundreds of interviews as guest and host, most of them focused on China. So uh, China's my muse, and, and, and I think it's the greatest show on earth. And, and uh, it's just difficult to comprehend if you, just, if you don't go there and see it with your own eyes. I, I, I must humbly confess that when in 1990, I was your typical Western asshole. I had all the answers. I knew everything. Uh, there was there, uh, you know, I had I had all the answers for the Chinese, uh, for all their problems. You know, the, this typical, it's, it's and it's not racial racial racism, but it, it's just this sense of superiority that, you know, the West is morally superior, technologically superior, uh, um, culturally superior, and to be honest with you, I was a real asshole all back for that for that seven years uh, even though i worked there and i learned the language fluently i was a shithead and 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 i really feel bad i really feel bad about you know my behavior back then but i i think and that's and that's what china rising the second book did is it ripped the scales of that superiority off of my eyes and and it because because by studying the, the west it brought the West down, you know, from from the heights of heaven to being just a good old, you know, good old fashioned, you know, colonial empire. And so um, that that was a very, very, very painful. I mean, I was crying at times. It was just so difficult to to to, to accept. You know, it was it was like wow. You know, we're not God. And um, so that at that point, I really began to understand China. And and so to be honest with you, I mean, 44 days, you just got to read the book. It's 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 it was an amazing trip. I mean, I saw stuff that most I mean, I don't think I saw more than maybe 10 foreigners the whole time I was out there. And most of it's out in the West. <laughs> You know, 94% of the people in China live on about 50, 50% of the land. And um, it's incredibly beautiful. You know, it's as big as the United States or Canada. It's f- fantabulously beautiful. And and the culture, you know, going back 5,000 years, and I went to museums and, and, and just, you know, ain't, ain't a, ancient sites and, and cultural sites and, 
and I really got into the geog the the geo the, the, the geology. I went to national parks, and it was um, it was just, it's 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 a fun it's, it, it was it was a fun trip, and um, and I, and I just it's it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to you know cram it all in. But I can just tell you that China is an amazing country. It's got, you know, it's got like 55 minorities. And so I went through all these minority areas. I was in mountains. I was in valleys, rivers, deserts, uh, you know, you name it, uh, uh, forests. I, I did all of that in 44 days. And, and um, it, it, it was uh, it's just unbelievable. And um, uh, I uh you know uh would like to maybe go back and see some of those places again after 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 being after being gone for so long just to see how much they've changed but i really dug into the history the culture the the food the clothing the languages the the, the economy the you know the the, the socioeconomic f- you know factors and how the people interact and relate to each other and live together. And, and, um, and since I speak, read and write the the language fluently, it really, you know, I, I can, I have a, I have a level of understanding that even though I was an asshole back then, I, I had, I had, I have a level of understanding that, you know, that 99% of the foreigners just can't, can't achieve. And I talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people so and and so what can i it's just that's it just it's in fact there's there's it's it's actually it's sold pretty well and there's actually used copies on amazon if you don't want to buy a new copy and um it's quite a read i mean it is uh it is quite a read and i put a lot of humor into it it's funny at times and and i i think i think it's a wonderful introduction even though i did make some mistakes about the Mao era, I feel, which I regret. I really regret, but I corrected those mistakes about the Mao era in China rising after I found out how awful the West is. And I could more fairly compare the two. So that, that, that was a catharsis to, to re, to re, uh, uh, assess, uh, the Mao era, uh, and the great leap forward in the cultural revolution. And I did that in China Rising. So there's some there's some historical mistakes in 44 days about the Mao era, but otherwise it's 98 percent, 98.5 or 99 percent, you know, uh, accurate. What were some of the things you believe you got wrong about the Mao era? Well, when I here's what happened. I was I was in like this boondock town. I'm trying to think. It's in the south. I was coming off the Tibet plateau, you know, I was up at like three and a half thousand meters and, and I was coming off the, the Tibet, the Tibetan plateau and heading down, heading down, uh, to, uh, Lake Lugu, which is a, which is at 2000 meters and where the most wall people live, where it's matriarchal, the women, the women run the show in the, in this minority in this minority, you know, tribe. And I was in this real, it was basically, it's a trucking town. It's a place where truckers stop, hire a prostitute, have sex, 
you know, drink, have a good time, and then they move on with, with their truck. So it's a it's a rough town. I guess I'm trying. It was Sh- Xiang, I, I can't remember. Anyway, it's in the southwest corner of Sichuan, and I got out of my hotel, which had re- you know little packages of you know lubricant for sex and prophylactics and and little little sex toys. That <laughs> was really interesting. And, uh, and then I, of course, and then I had, you know, I had women calling me, you know, prostitutes and I, and I call, and I called the, I called the desk and said, listen, I'm not interested. I'm a married man. And so, um, so anyway, I was out walking around on the streets and I see this restaurant and it's, and it's called, and it's called, it's called the cultural, the, the cultural revolution restaurant. And, and I go into it, and it's all decorated like the Cultural Revolution. And I'm like going, you know, and a little bit of the the, the, the Great Leap Forward, just a, kind of kind of a kind of a kitschy kind of a kitschy pastiche of 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 of, of, of the Mao era, and, and pictures of Mao, and pictures of people working together, and you know, camping cups and you know, real simple because it was supposed to be like, you know, the, when the when the city kids went out, you know, went out to the countryside to, to work. And I was sitting there and I was like, I, I didn't really it didn't really sink into me until I got back. And, th- and that visit was one of the was one of the catalysts that got me to write China Rising. I'm sitting there. I'm going, I got back and I'm going. But he killed 80 million people. He's a he was a butcher. He was an evil. He was an evil, uh, a genocidal maniac. He he had claws and he had fangs and green moss between his teeth. And and he was a horrible, horrible person because that's what we have been told in the West. And I'm going, and so this cognitive dissonance of everything that I had been brainwashed with about communist China and Mao and the, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And, and then I'm going, but the Chinese are not stupid. How, why do they love this guy? And then I start, and, and I never really, it never really, I never really thought about it until then. But then all of a sudden, I, well, on my travels, Mao was everywhere. Mao posters, Mao pins, Mao statues, Mao everything in 44 days. Mao was everywhere. And when I got back to Beijing, I started noticing all the Mao, Mao paraphernalia in daily life, which I, I guess I just kind of filtered out earlier. And I'm going, how can the Chinese love someone who supposedly mm. destroyed the country twice, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, and killed 80 million people, you know, had long lists, you know, and slaughtered every one of them? It, it's, not, it, it's not possible. So I knew at that point the Chinese the Chinese knew something about Mao that the West didn't. And that the Chinese had a different understanding of Mao Zedong 
and what the West had brainwashed me into believing. So what I did at that point is I started doing massive research. I started doing research in French, English, and Chinese. And I come, I come to find out that I come to find out that in fact, um, you know, the cultural revolution and, and, and we, I, we, I just don't, it's, 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 there's a lot going, it's, there's a lot of moving parts, but the great leap forward is not what, is not what the, uh, the West portrays it as a gigantic failure and, and, uh, uh, a famine that you know, a famine that killed thirty or forty million people, or fifty million people, or whatever. It's not true. I'm just I, and and I go and I and I go into I think it's China Rising, or is it Big Red Book on China? Anyway, um, that it's basically a gigantic lie, just like the Tiananmen Square protests. The whole the whole shtick, you know, that there was a, ma- a, a massacre of mm. thousands of students and blood, blood on the blood on the blood on, on, on the stones. And that's, that's a complete and total fabrication. I found out that the, that the, that the great leap forward and the cultural revolution are a gigantic um, lie, a, a, a myth that's, be, that's perpetrated by the West. And, and I really get into, and I really, I really get into it. I get into it some in China Rising, but I really got into the nitty gritty of the Great Leap Forward, and the and the and and the Cultural Revolution, and in the Big Red Book on China, and I just totally debunk everything that the West says about them. And now uh, I say, and, and I say it with absolute sincerity about Mao Zedong. And since then I've gone to, I went to his hometown in Hunan and, and just, and, and have seen so much more, even since I've written the books, I've just seen so much stuff about, about, about post-liberation history. But I, for Mao Zedong, I say never has one leader done so much for so many people in so little time. And that's the truth. And, 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 you know, and the, all I can do is just tell people, read my book. And if you don't want to buy my books, get on my website, you know, chinarising.puntopress.com and read my articles. Just Google Mao, uh, search Mao on my website, and I've got all kinds of stuff. Um, so that, that, that got, that got, that's the bad part about the 44 days is I was still, you know, sucked into that. You know that that Mao that Mao was 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 a was a, was a bloodthirsty butcher, and I believed all what was called scar literature. All this, all, you know, like Frank uh, Dickotter and 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 all the and all these um, uh, what was called scar literature, where they they write the most lurid, um, uh, exaggerated lies. You know, to to just it's almost like pornography. And, um, and I was, I was still buying into that when I wrote 44 days and, and I regret that. And that, that was corrected in, in my second book, China Rising. The Uyghur genocide is also fabricated. Oh, it's a complete and total fabrication. I mean, it's just like, it's just uh, even, 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 you know, there's internal documents with the, uh, you know, on WikiLeaks, you know, the U.S., U.S., U.S. you know diplomatic 
you know, what, you know, uh, communiques, they say it's, they say it's not true, but it's just, you know, the, what I call the West's big lie propaganda machine is so effective and so ruthlessly efficient at brainwashing the vast majority of people on earth. And so that's why I keep writing and interviewing and, you know, trying to just educate people about, about what really is going on in, in China. And, uh, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's not true. Uh, Tibet, all the, all that, all that, 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 the riots they had, what was it? 2000, right before the Olympics, that was all CIA. The Dalai Lama is a paid CIA agent. He gets over a million dollars a year from the CIA. His brother was a trained terrorist. Uh, that's all in my books. I did all this, you know, did, did thousands of hours of research, you know, discovering all this. And, uh, and that's what caused my huge sea change and transformation, along with the finding out about all the false flags, the, the 9-11 and Charlie Hebdo and Bataclan and, uh, the Boston Marathon and all those, all these just blatant false flags that are used to manipulate the people and the and turn them into sheeple, basically. And unfortunately, it works. Why do you think there is this incredible animosity from the West towards China? That's a wonderful question, Jeremy. And, and you really have to go back. You really have to go back several hundred years. And I'll be brief. But from the time that the, that the Portuguese uh, got to what is now today Hong Kong uh, in 1516, I think it was, 1517, uh, uh, Catholic monks, that was the first contact uh, in, the, in the, you know, I'm sure there was contact earlier because with the Silk Roads, you know, the China went all the way to Europe with the Silk Roads as far as, they, I mean, the the Chinese were trading with the Romans, you know, during the Roman Empire. So uh, I'm sure there was contact. There was contact back then. But in terms of like, you know, uh, since the 1500s, that was it, it, it was it was the Portuguese. And then <coughs> after that, the there was this huge interest in the six in the in, in, in the 1500s. To the 1600s, there was this massive interest in China, and uh, in, in Europe. Of course, this was before the United States, so they they're, they're, they 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 didn't even <coughs> exist. And everything Chinese was wonderful. Every, the Confucius and you know people like Voltaire and uh, Leibniz, uh, you know, were huge fans. Philosophy. Philosophers in Europe were promoting, you know, Chinese Confucianism and Taoism, and and the and the West was importing massive amounts of furniture and clocks, and silk clothing and paintings and porcelain and tea, and it just went on and on and on. And so it was it was the, there was the, there was for about from about 1550 until about 17 until about 1680 china was the bee's knees as we say or the cat's meow as we as we joke in in the united states 
and in in six in 1680 in the 1680s we were into the age of enlightenment uh and people we had the west finally got the, the printing press which of course was invented in china you know 300 years earlier uh, but everybody thinks, you know, that, of course, it was, you know, Guta that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, not uh, uh, who was it? They say in the German guys, not is it Guta or no Gutenberg? Yeah, Gutenberg. Actually, it was actually the Koreans beat the Chinese by 30 years for metal, for for metal movable type. But for for several hundred years, China had wood and clay and and porcelain movable type way before the Europeans. But anyway. People, even common people in Europe, were learning to read. There was a, a massive amount of flow because of colonialism. You know, people were leaving the country. People were coming back. And there was a, a, a real sense of unease among European elites um, about uh, uh, people were starting, to, you know, questioning religion and it was the age of enlightenment. It was the it was it was just you know people were starting to to think a bit for themselves, and the elites were really really worried, and there was also among the common among the common people, all the bad things that happened that were happening in the colonies, the brutality, the 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 genocide, the the, you know, the, the, the expropriation, the mass theft of, of, of resources, that information was coming back into Europe <laughs> and causing the common people to question what the hell was going on. So, uh, and so the, of course, the Catholic Church, you know, and then, of course, we had the Protestant Church at that time. They decided that, I mean, I don't think they all got together in, in, a, in, a, in, in a group like in a you know, at the Vatican and made this decision, but there was a consensus among the elites, among the, the monarchies, among the nobles, among the churches, uh, that something had to be done to bring the people of Europe together cohesively. And of course, what has the West been, you know, doing cohesively? To, to, to bring the people together cohesively in the West, what have we been doing for 3,000 freaking years? We find enemies. And so, believe it or not, in the, 1680, in the 1680s, guess who became the bugaboo, the, the evil that had to be resisted? Islam. Islam became demonized in the 1680s all across Europe. And at the same time, China became a non-entity and became, and became a nothing. And, and the, it, it's almost like right now we can't, we can't, we can't listen to Tchaikovsky or, or uh, read, you know, uh, you know, Tolstoy in the West. It was pretty much China was completely devalued. Everything that the Chinese had helped the Europeans developed with their incredible technology that was hundreds of years ahead of the West. All of a sudden, the West invented all this. They just expropriated everything that the Chinese had given the, the Europeans 
for the last 200 years. They expropriated all that, claimed it as their own. And uh, since that time, you know, the, the idea, all these, all these shibboleths about, uh, about, about the yellow peril and the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, you know, Asians and all these, all, all these, um, all these, you know, exagger, all these exaggerations about their behavior and everything uh, began to increase and, and increase. So uh, basically what the, the foundation of where we are today, where the West has a deeply ingrained fear <coughs> and loathing of Chinese people uh, is due to what happened then. And, and it's just, it's just down to just fear and racism, uh, the yellow peril, you know, I mean, this, this goes back, you know, this goes back in, this goes back to the night and in, into the early 19th century. And then of course the, uh, China for the first time in 5,000 years was weak and the Qing dynasty was weak and the, British uh, took everything that the Chinese taught them, you know, the rudder, sails, guns, um, compass, paper, everything that, that, that the Chinese had given them, they used that and cannons and, and military equipment, which was 300 years ahead of the West. The West expropriated all that from the Chinese. The, the British were able to... Um, bring the Qing dynasty to its knees during the opium wars. They were flooding the country with opium uh, and they were able to continue to do that until 1949 with the liberation by the, uh, by the people's liberation army and the, and the communist party. And, and um, um, so for 110 years, the West raped and plundered uh, one of the greatest civilizations in, in human history. Uh, and they got away with it for 110 years, and 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 since then, you know, <laughs> the world has changed. It's no longer it's no longer the case. Unfortunately, Germ, the problem is 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 that today Westerners, their vision of who China is and who what China is and who the Chinese are is based on that 110 year period, which the Chinese call the century. Of humiliation, and they they think they think that's what what the Chinese are. They they think that's how the Chinese are. They completely forgot that before that, for five thousand years, China was hundreds and sometimes even in terms of technology, even thousands of years ahead of the rest of the world technologically, <clears throat> innovation, invention, uh, you know, agriculture industry uh the, they were so far ahead of the rest of the world that's all been forgotten and and so people keep glomming on this you know this idea that the, you know that the chinese are like where they were in 1890 and it's just not true that's uh, uh the chinese are back the chinese are back and um and 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 and, and roaring, roaring like a lion uh on the world stage they've always been number one there was a time in the in the 1200s, there was a time in the 1200s, 1100, 1100, 1200, 1300 in that period, 
China had 50% of the world's population. They had 50% of the world's GDP, and they had over 80% of the, of, of the metropolitan population. And um, so that's how big and, and badass China was before Western empire got its, you know, Western colonialism got its hooks into it from 1839 to 1949 and, and they're back and uh, they're changing the world and they're, and, uh, and there's nothing that the West can do to stop them. It's unbelievable what's going on there. And I saw that in May. It's just, it's just mind boggling. It's a colossus. It's, it's like if, if, you know, if, if Europe, if Europe is earth, China is the solar system. I mean, it's just, or if, if you, you know, if the West is Earth, China is the solar system. It is that massive and that colossal and that it's moving at the speed of a bullet into the 22nd century and nothing's going to stop them. They can't be stopped. In your travels through China, what were some of the big differences that you notice between Chinese culture and let's say American or Western culture? Well, we have to, this, that's a very good question, Jerome. We have to understand that Western society is based on morals. Western governance is based on morals. The problem with morals is, is, is that if my morals are different, are different than your morals, then I think you should adopt my morals. And if you, if you don't adopt my morals, I'm going to, you know, kill you or take you, take your country away from you. This is basically largely due to religion. Look, look, look at, look at, you know, look at Catholicism. And then, uh, and then, and then we had, and then we had the, the Orthodox church, the Russian Orthodox church, the great schism in 1054 and then we had the Protestants, you know, come, you know, you know, coming along, uh, you know, uh, later. And so it's unfortunately in, in, in the West, it's religious based. My God is different. You know, my God, my Jesus, you know, my my Bible, we've got all these different Bibles. <laughs> it's all based on moral, moral superiority, which is why the West, I think, has had a lot of problems over the last 3,000 years. And the, the, in China, society and culture is based on ethics, not morals. It's based on ethics. And there's only one rule in ethics. Do not do unto others what you do not want done to you and that's that is chinese culture the golden rule do unto others as you want others to do unto you and the way they govern the way they the leaders uh, and i'm not saying it's been a paradise for the last five thousand years but a lot of wars and stuff but the but still there is this imperative there's this imperative among the leaders the among the even the emperors, the elites, the the nobles, the bourgeois, the rich people, um, and, and on down to and on down to the peasants, there is this sense of obligation 
uh, to do to 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 treat people right, and that makes all the difference. And 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 it's so successful compared to the Western model of morals is is that in in 200 A.D. when Rome the Roman Empire was at its absolute greatest extent. That was actually the end of the Han Dynasty in China, the first unified, well, actually the Qin was the first, but uh, in, in, uh, uh, in uh, right before, right before uh, well, yeah, uh, 200 BC, it finally got unified. Then the Han Dynasty in, in 200 AD, the Roman Empire, you know, they were in England, they were in France, they were in Spain, they were in North, North Africa, they were in Egypt, they were all over the Middle East, all over the Mediterranean. And at that time, the Roman Empire uh, compared to the, the Chinese, the China at that time, uh, compared to the Roman Empire, had, had uh, six times as much land mass and nine times as many people. Think about that. Why would China have six times as much landmass and nine times as many people compared to the greatest empire in Western civilization? Well, that's because they have an overriding sense of obligation to take care of the people and to take care of each other. That's why, that's why in, in my book, which one is it? Is it? Uh, oh, it's China Rising. I, I juxtapose a, a, a picture of, of, the, of, of the emperor of the Shang dynasty in 1500 or 1700 BC with Karl Marx. And I did it on purpose to just point out that China's always been communist. There's always been this communalism and you know sharing and helping each other and and, and and working together and 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 you know of course there's been wars. Of course there's been a, you know you know a lot of horrible things have happened over history, but 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 but, but the, the gravity to pull all of that back towards the golden rule is always there. And it is, and it is today, and that's why, you know, uh, Mao Zedong, his famous motto was "Serve the people." Well, that actually goes back to the Tang Dynasty from 600 to 900. Leaders back then were saying, "Serve the people. If the people don't eat, I don't eat. If the people don't have a house, I don't have a house. You know, it, if the people are not happy, then I'm. I can't be happy." And that's what emperors have been have been living have have felt the have felt that sense of duty going back for thousands of years. So that's that that's the biggest difference. Now, from nineteen from after Mao died in seventy six, and Deng Xiaoping basically opened you know let loose the dogs of capitalism. From from the early nineteen eighties until the nineteen nineties. It was a it was a fucking uh, not a nice place. It was dog eat dog at the at, at the street level, and like I said, it was just like it was awful. You couldn't trust anybody. 
<clears throat> so, but that's the exception to the rule. You know, that that's the, because they were trying to be capitalists, you know, and in capitalism, you screw everybody and lie and cheat and steal to get rich. I mean, that's what it's all about. And so other than that period, and then finally, finally, when they got the Beijing, the Beijing Olympics in 2008, they were, I wrote about this, they were, I mean, you could read about it in the media. We can't keep this up. We can't have this kind of behavior, you know, for the Beijing Olympics. And so they started to, they started a lot of proper, you know, a lot of public campaigns and a lot of you know, public propaganda camp, you know, public service campaigns, and they started changing policies, and they started, you know, uh, uh, and they started to uh, uh, smooth over the 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 the, the god awful, you know, concrete jungle capitalism that that, that they had from from the eighties into into the into into the early two thousands. So that's that's um, those are those are some of the big differences. It's even more pronounced now. I mean, when I went back in May, I just got back. I spent, all, like I said, I'm a, I, they don't even lock their motorbikes. They don't even, they, they leave their helmets on their motorbikes. They, it's just so honest. And so uh, even about a third of, 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 of the old-fashioned, you know, bikes, you know, like you and I used to ride when we were kids, about a third of them are not even locked. You know, and and people are just leaving stuff out. There's no crime. There's no there's no street crime. There's no theft. There's, I mean, it's really become it's really become very Confucian and very Taoist and very very Buddhist. But never which which never which those never went away, by the way. But you it, you can really feel it now, and it's so it's just so relaxing now, and so and so easy, and and, and 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 people are calm and and although Beijing is 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 a it's kind of like the New York of it's kind of like the New York of uh, of China it's real real hard nosed it's kind of a hard nosed city but every I went to I went to Changsha and Hunan I went to Zhuhai uh, across the Pearl River Delta from Shenzhen I was in Shenzhen and it's just it's just amazing to see. It's just amazing to see. When you were traveling, did you notice a strong sense of community and family? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I've actually written about this, and in one in in one of my books, I think I it's either that or in uh, an article I wrote on my website, I put the triangle. I put I put a triangle <coughs> of socio social hierarchy comparing the west to china and in the in, in in the west especially america what's at the top of the pyramid me me myself and i i'm you know i'm marlboro man and then after and in the united states especially that but it's it's better here in europe there's more of a sense of family but it's being destroyed by all this wokeism and it's just awful. But anyway, me, kind of sort of family, kind, kind, sort of even less community, city, uh, state, um, um, and then the country, and then 
the the leaders in the government are at the bottom of of, of the of the pyramid. You know, they they're distrusted and, and they should distrust them because they've been evil for most of the last three thousand years. The the leadership and the government are down at the bottom of the uh, of the pyramid in, in 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 the West. You invert that, and in China, and in China, the government and the leaders are at the top. They are number one. Okay, and then uh, next comes uh, family. Next comes family. You know, still to this day, many, if not most households in China are three generations. If, if you have children, if you have children, grandma and, grandma and grandpa move in. You know, you still have a three-generation family. If not full-time, they at least come a lot, you know, during, during the early years of the child. So in, so in China, so you've got... The, You've got trust in the leaders. You've got the country up at the top, and the leaders trust the people. The leaders in the West don't trust their people, and the people don't trust their leaders. Here in China, they trust each other to do the right thing, the golden rule. And so then below that, you've got the family, and then you've got um, you know, then you can go through, you know, your community, your local community, your city, um, your region or your state. Uh, and and then, you know, and then guess who's at the bottom of the shit heap? Me. You come last, pal. You don't count for shit in China as an individual. Everything is everything is community based. And the Chinese do not like Marlboro men. They do not like them. They, 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 they tend to get, they, they tend to, you know, they do not do well. There is a real sense of duty and, and obligation to society, to family, to country. They're super, super patriotic, super nationalist. Uh, and uh, they, 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 they believe in their leaders. China is much more democratic than the West. For thousands of years, there's a saying in China, if the emperor is not doing a good job, we just, let's just get us, we're just going to get us some bamboo stakes. We're just going to get us some bamboo stakes and storm the emperor's palace, and let's get us a new leader. That's what, that's, they were a, actually able to depose once, once, a, once an emperor lost the, the heavenly mandate, the people just storm. They, they had they they had a, they had a lot more you know p- political power than ever in the West. They stormed the they stormed the they stormed the palace and demanded that a new emperor be put in place. And if that guy didn't do the right job, storm it again until they got the right guy. <laughs> and the obligation of the leadership is to maintain the cohesiveness of the country's borders, in other words, stop invaders, and to, um, to stop invaders and to avoid war at all costs. Sovereignty. Uh, yeah, sovereignty. And in fact, in the, in fact uh, an axiom in, in Chinese military is 
the greatest, the greatest generals, the greatest generals. Well, first off, the, the axiom is the greatest leaders are the ones that never have to go to war. And the greatest generals are the ones that never have to have to have to go, go into battle. They, they, they figure out how to avoid fighting at all costs. Also, one of the great axioms in Chinese in Chinese military is if all else fails, retreat. You know, they, they don't have this, you know, this Western, you know, maniacal, you know, well, well, like what they're doing to the Ukrainians in Ukraine, you know, just slaughtering them like dogs, you know, just just pushing, you know, people into the meat grinder. That's not the way the Chinese ever, you know, you know tried to fight. They tried to avoid it at all costs. So that's why they had six times as much land and nine times as many people in, in 200 AD. And that's why they have a 1.5 billion people today. And humans are a resource. And so that is a massive resource for China, all of their people. And it just shows how successful their, their governance model is compared to the West. Is this way of looking at the world wired into the chinese people or or is it or is it forced oh, or imposed from the top oh no 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 it's not no this is something that's this is something that again that goes back thousands of years it's actually you know it's actually the chinese who for 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 much of its history they were the ones that had low taxes i mean uh, well, let's let's at least go back into the you know into the 1500s and 1600s. It was the Chinese that had low taxes, small government, leave the people. And one of Confucius's maxims, one of Confucius's maxims is let the people govern themselves. And if you trust the people, and if you as a leader are a role model of probity, honesty, hard work, and care and concern that will be reflected in the people and the people will take care of themselves it was the chinese that had low taxes it was the chinese that that had small government all back during this time you know when the when the english were saying you know it was the chinese that had low tariffs it was the chinese that were basically you know had had, had a liberal had a liberal economic model so this has been this is Germ, this has been hardwired into the Chinese. Like I say, when I juxtapose that, it was it was done, you know, tongue in cheek. But when I juxtapose that, uh, you know, picture of, of, of Karl Marx and 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 uh, the emperor of the Shang Dynasty, you know, going go, you know, 1,700 and something BC, it, it it was there for a reason. Is that this is the, the communism is so natural to the Chinese, I and mean, they don't even question it. It's just They've been doing it for millennia. It's also not this great evil because communism has got a very bad reputation in the West. Well, you know what I really love right now, Germ? I love the fact that China is a communist socialist country and it's got fuck you money. It's got so <laughs> much goddamn money. It is so fucking rich. It is so powerful. And it's the first communist socialist country, at least in modern times, since the 19th century, 
who's got fuck you money and they're and, and they can tell the West, fuck you. You know, we don't need you. And that's what's happening now. I mean, the West has burned all of its bridges. I mean, Blinken and Biden and Macron and Sunak and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and Schultz in Germany and all this, this madness, you know, of self-destruction in, 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 in the West and wokeism and, and complete and social, complete and total social cultural meltdown. The Chinese don't need them anymore, and, and, and they are so unassailable. Their military is better than, than the United States' is and Europe's. The only one that could even challenge it is Russia, and Russia and China are now like, you know, are like locked, like, you know, brother, brothers in arms, you know. And so, and they, they're so rich and they're so powerful they can just sit back and watch the the West just collapse, and, and they can just bide their time. They have low inflation. Joblessness is a bit of a problem right now, but it's you know it's nothing like compared to, to compared to uh, to to, uh, to to Europe at least. Um, they actually build things. Their GDP is built on production and materials and things and stuff and um, technology and innovation and invention and 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 so and the the west the west's economic model is based on financialization debt um, you know uh, Wall Street you know all, you know the, the, that all gets counted into the GDP you you just go spend you just go spend one week in China, Germ, and tell me that the U.S. E- the U.S. economy is bigger than China's. Ha ha ha! It's just no comparison. I mean, the 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 it's just massive the the economy in China, and people are working and hustling and and you know cheat you know producing things and. And you know they're hardworking and and they don't complain very much and they just do you know it's just a totally different mindset. Oh, just, but we all know why totally though. Different. We all know why. If they don't work, they're all going to get shot, right? Oh, I can tell you. I, I've written some really great stuff. I, I've written some really <laughs> great articles on my website. China, China's democracy is so much better that for the people than the West's elitist, aristocratic, bogus, bogus, you know, uh, electoral democracy. The Chinese, the Chinese have, have learned for thousands of years that if they don't like something, they complain to the government. For thousands of years, the Chinese, and it still happens to this day, they can go into the, to their government office and register a complaint. And <clears throat> now with social media, who's who is the biggest polling organization in the world doing surveys and, po- and, and polls? The Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. Because they want to know what the people think and feel. Every law, every regulation that is promulgated in China and even back during the Mao 
era, they didn't have internet, so they would post them on board on boards in, in the villages all over the country. And I actually took pictures of these. I actually took pictures to show people, you know, here this is this is how they used to communicate for or even going back, you know, thousands of years. They put put notices up for the people to know what's going on. Um, and so if the people are against something, it's not going to pass. And, I, and I'll just give you two examples. The, the Chinese got really pissed off um, in the last few years about two things. One is personal information. They started realizing that Tencent, which is WeChat, and, and, and then Alibaba and Baidu, uh, bat Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, three of the biggest high-tech high corporations in the world, they're behemoths, were abusing the data that they were gathering on their citizens. The people rose up. There is a phone number. There is a, a phone number in China you can call. There are websites you can go to and register complaints, and they are dealt with. I even did it in Shenzhen. We had a, 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 I don't want to get into the details, but we had a snafu about the, about how the traffic was flowing on one of the streets next to where we were living. I, well, just, I actually went down to my local mayor, local city hall, made the complaint, you know, showing them photographs of what needed to be done. And three weeks later it was fixed. So everything in China is consensual. It's bottom up. It comes from the bottom. It comes from the people. It's consensual and it is uh, cooperative. And if the people and if the people don't want it, it's not going to happen. And if the people want something, they're going to get it. So what the Ch Chinese the people got was incredible laws controlling how these big ch companies we're using their personal information. They cut them off at the knees. They cut these tech companies down, fined them billions of dollars, mo practically moved the, the, the government, the Chinese government into these big tech companies and were watching them like a hawk and they still are. In fact, they just fined Alibaba, they just fined Alibaba almost a billion dollars today. And so, and so that was, so now per, my personal information in China is much safer than anywhere in the West. The second one was facial recognition. Again, the Chinese were getting a little spooked about the pervasive use of facial, facial recognition around the, I even have an experience where I wrote about how they, how I showed, uh, they, they actually, I looked into a camera to go into a, into a museum out in the middle of bumfuck nowhere in Hunan, and it actually recognized my face. I couldn't believe it. But anyway, that, 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 now, that now has, that also, massive laws, massive laws to control the use of images, people's images, people's faces, et cetera, facial recognition, is all out on the open. This is what we're doing with your images. It's all public. It's all out there for everybody to see. Of course, they're using facial recognition, but it's been explained to, to the people what they're using it for. 
now it's being reduced down to now it's being reduced. They're catching, you know, tens of thousands of bad guys, you know, uh, criminals. Uh, and, and, and so now the people are supporting facial recognition, but they got what they wanted. They, they got some explanation and some reinforcement. And this goes on and on and on and on. I, mean, I can just show you example after example where the, Chi- where the Chinese want something and they get it, in, like the social credit score. They loved, they, they were sick and tired of the lawlessness and the thievery and the lying and the cheating and the stealing going on during, during the uh, Deng, Deng Xiaoping, you know, wild East Buckaroo days. And they want they wanted they wanted some normalcy back in their life. They were the ones that demanded the social credit system, and it works beautifully. I have a social credit score. I can go on my I can go on my phone right here, open up Ali open up Ali Pay, and I can tell you my score. It's five hundred and seventy four. Not it's good, but it's not great. What does that mean? So, well, it's based. It goes up to eight hundred, I think. If it if it drops below 400, you're a bad. You, you've done some bad things, <coughs> and <coughs> I don't use it. I don't use it. If I borrowed money in China uh, and paid my bill and paid my bills, you know, if I did if I did more th- more things, uh, I, I, I you know my score would go up. <laughs> what are as, it, what are examples? Sorry, what are examples of some of those bad things? Like uh, a deadbeat, a deadbeat husband not paying his alimony, uh, a deadbeat father not paying child support, uh, not paying your taxes, uh, uh, getting caught, you know, committing a crime, you know, if you get caught, you know, pickpocketing or you know, shoplifting or uh, if you if you drive negligently, if you drive while intoxicated. All of that will lower your score down, and as your score goes down lower and lower, uh, then you start losing privileges. You, know, you, you you can't fly first class, you know. On uh, you can't fly first class or business class on an airplane. You may not even be able to leave the country until you get your act together and start being more responsible towards society. Or internally, you may not get to ride a, a, a high-speed train. You have to ride a local train because you have you have disrespected uh, the, the, Chi- the Chinese people. It's mainly not for the individual. The, the social credit score is mainly for businesses and bureaucrats. They want to root, root out, and they are ruthlessly rooting out corrupt officials, corrupt Communist Party uh, uh, members. They're rooting out uh, a, a crooked, you know, crooked CEOs, corrupt CEOs, and companies that are that that get caught, you know, jigging the jiggering the numbers, uh, committing fraud, uh, putting out putting out a crap product, you know, knowingly putting out a crap product, etc. Those companies, well, first off, all those government officials are going to get, you know, disciplined or, you know, lose their jobs. There was a guy just, just this week, he got caught holding hands with one of his employees walking in public 
and um, he was 50, she was 30, and they were worked at this big at this big Chinese energy state-owned company. They both lost their jobs. He got kicked out, and he got kicked out of the China out out of the Communist Party of China. So uh, it that's another thing, Germ, you just brought up. It, that's a very important, a huge difference in Chinese culture. Accountability, accountability to yourself, and accountability to society, your family, your community, is paramount. Whereas, as you can see in the West, accountability is to be avoided and to be evaded, and and shrugging off responsibility and and, and pushing it off onto somebody else. That's a huge difference. So. Um, uh, it's, it's just a different kettle of fish, but, um, and, and I'll, I'll give you, and it's just, it's just more relaxing that here in the West, you know, um, I remember a few years ago, my daughter was back, we were back here in France and she, we were on the Champs-Élysées and we haven't drinking a coffee in a, you know, Tony, Tony cafe on Champs-Élysées and she had been back for about three weeks here in France, she actually went with us in 2010, graduated from Beijing Normal University, um, and speaks, reads, and writes fluent Chinese. And we were sitting there, we were sitting there, and she was like, you know, we were just, she was like going, you know, Daddy, why do I feel so much freer in China? Why do I feel like I have much more freedom in China than I do here? And she's right. You, 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 you have this sense of where you can just kind of relax and not, and, you know, fr- you know, freedom's not, freedom's, you know, not having to worry about getting raped or robbed or stolen or, or attacked. Uh, there's none of that. There's, you know, it, it just, you know, it, my daughter could walk down the street in a mini skirt at midnight in, in Beijing and no one would mess with her. And they're not going to mess with a Chinese woman either. So there's this real sense of, of, of not having to worry about your safety, not having to worry about your, you know, your belongings. You can relax. Um, there's no, there's no homeless people. There's no beggars. You know, the subways and the buses are. You can eat off the floors. It's nice. It's clean. It's you know, it's relaxing. It's nice. It's just, just, you know, and then you... It's a stark difference to, say, living here in South Africa where there's no accountability, huge amounts of murder and rape, um, p- police violence, brutality to farmers. It, the list just goes on. Yeah, that, I, can show, I can show you photograph, uh, film footage. Well, first off, the cops in China don't even carry guns. They don't even have guns. It's like the... The, the good old days with the British Bobbies, you know, that, that didn't last very long with all the, the false flags, you know, the false flags with the London subway, which was a false flag. That gave them the excuse to start carrying guns. They don't even have guns. You know, the, there's no violence on the streets. And I can show you film footage of like a drunk guy or somebody who's mentally ill or maybe they forgot to take their medication or they're depressed or whatever and he's out there on the street with a butcher knife chasing people 
but you know how long he'd live in in South Africa or or Europe these days or in, or anywhere in the West, he'd get his brains blown out in about two seconds. Well, in fr- in China, the cops are sitting there like, you know, they don't want to hurt the guy, and they're like they're dodging him and going, you know, doing doing all these maneuvers so that they can try to catch him. And then what's even most amazing, Germ, the public joins in and they're grabbing chairs and they're grabbing things, you know, that they can use to, you know, to pin the guy, to, to push the guy into a corner and they finally get him down and there's four or five citizens and there's a couple of cops, you know, that finally get this guy down. That doesn't happen in the West. You know, there's a, uh, and also another interesting thing is the recidivism in China is like, you know, if they go, if they go to, if they go to prison, um, the recidivism, meaning when they go, that they, the, the chances of them going back into prison after they've served their time and they've been, and they're actually reformed in China. The recidivism in China is about 7%. The recidivism in the West is anywhere from 60 to 70 to 80%. They're back in the slammer real fast. In China, they actually do, re, they, they actually do you know, reform and educate and give them skills. And it's just a total, it's just a people-oriented, people-supported, people bottom-up, consensual uh, uh, a democracy and the people are working together, you know, you know, you know, trying to help each other. And, and, and of course there's arguments and of course there's stuff that happens and, but it's just nothing, nothing like in the West. It's just, it's like, a, it's like a parallel universe. Why do you choose not to live in China? Well, I, well, well, first off I'm 69 I'm I'm a member of Club 69, uh, so uh, health insurance is an issue. I am a dual national, um, meaning I have an American passport and a French passport. Here in France, we still have socialist medicine. You know, post-war socialist medicine. We still have, probably, even though it's been bastardized and destroyed by neoliberal austerity since 2009 with the Lisbon Treaty, uh, but it's still the best medical system in the world. And in order for me to, I don't pay any, I, I pay, I, my wife and I pay about 104 euros a month for a, a mutual health insurance. And after that, we don't pay anything. All of our medications paid. I mean, I've got, I've had a, I've had skin cancers and you know, s- surgeries and stuff, all kinds of tests and everything done, you know, just everything, all the medications paid for. I don't take, I only, only take, you know, thyroid, but I'm just saying we, we have, we have a wonderful health system and I have to stay here 181 days a year to keep it. So, um, and, and, France is a nice place to live. <laughs> the food's good. The wine's good. The cheese is good. The people are nice. It's beautiful. 
it's going to hell in a handbasket like the rest of the West. But at least for the, until I die, it's still a very nice place to live. So my goal is is to try to do pretty much six months in China and six months here, because if I go live in if I go live in China, then I have to get private health insurance. I turn seventy next year. The cost of the health insurance is going to go through the roof. Here I've got my universal health card. I go to the pharmacy. I hand it to, them, and I don't pay a damn thing. <laughs> you know? If I if I had a heart attack tomorrow, if I had a car accident, if I got burned, if I got cancer, I cannot guarantee that that won't happen. My cost here in France, goose egg, zero, nothing. 104 euros a month for my wife and me together. We basically have zero deductible, zero copay for everything, everything. So that's why, I mean, if I were 30, well, even, you know, back, you know, earlier, um, you know, I would, I would try to live there full time, but I just, I just can't, I can't give up, I can't give up the French health and health, health insurance, the health system. It's just, too, it's just too valuable at my age at my age, but I'll be back six. I'm going to try to get back six months. I'm going back in September. I'm going to spend a month and I'm going to go to go to go going to Shenzhen and I'm going to uh, Hefei and Anhui and I'm going to go to a rural wedding, which is going to be really cool. And then I'm going to go to, to Huangshan, Yellow Mountain, UNESCO National Park. And then I'm going to go to John Jiajie, uh, uh, UNESCO World Park, which is what inspired Avatar with the floating, with the floating mountains, you know, the floating things in, in space. And I'm going to go down to Guilin, you know, and see the beautiful, you know, the, the beautiful, you know, uh, you know, bread, you know, the, the gumdrop mountains on the Lee River. So I'm going to get back as often as I can. How can I follow your work www.chinarising just like in english dot punto press p u n t o p r e s s dot com however if you just write jeff j brown 44 days jeff j brown china rising you'll you'll pick me up i mean i'm uh, they, so far i'm, I'm amazed that they have not censored me. Uh, I, I mean, I'm getting over 5 million page views a year. And um, I'm shocked that I have not been, I have not been censored. But right now you see, you Google my name and China rising 44 days. Uh, and, 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 and my website will immediately pop up anywhere. So you, even if you forget China rising you can still find me. Jeff J. Brown, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, I am so happy to be with someone from the Republic of South Africa because I love your country, I love your people, and I love equally South African wine and good men. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.